1: Spring salads with chicken to go. Salads
3: with chicken to go.
1: Two hamburgers
4: and a milk, please. Yeah, do you guys have any milkshakes? We
1: do. We'll hear how these people are feeding their brains in just a moment. I'm Molly Bentley.
4: And I'm Seth Jostak, and I'm feeding my brain with this crossword. It's supposed to boost your brain power, you know. All right, six-letter word for adept. Six letters, A-D-R-O-I-T. That's six adroit.
1: Crosswords can strengthen our cognitive function, in other words, the workings of our brains. 21 across. Five-letter word
3: for accelerated. But there may be quicker methods. Got it. Rapid. Down the line. We're expected to get really small probes that we can stick deep inside the brain and connect to individual neurons. Six-letter word for
4: android.
3: You know,
1: go right inside the brain.
4: C-Y-B-O-R-G.
3: Got that. Once they can do that. Once we can do that, we can start making a replica of the brain out in the computer world. Then you store your memory
1: outside your head.
3: Where the computer's essentially got a nerve for nerve replica of what's inside your head. Eight letters for intelligent and aware.
4: S-E-N-T, oh, S-E-N-T-I-E-N-T, sentient, got it. So that's
1: where our brains are headed. But first, let's take a look at where they've been rather how we got our big brains. Remember this scene? And you want whipped cream?
2: Yeah, I'm gonna have to take whipped cream on.
0: Okay, and whipped cream It intrigues Bill Leonard. I'm Bill Leonard, I'm the chairman and professor of anthropology at Northwestern University.
1: He sees our modern diet as an
0: improvement
1: on the past. And we have cherries I can put on top too. Maraschino? It's
0: brain food. One of the things that really distinguishes us as humans from our primate relatives is the fact that we evolved and are adapted to diets that are very high in quality. they got seafood, Mongolian, Chinese,
2: Japanese, Californian, whatever that is.
0: That means that they're very rich in both calories and nutrients, much more so, say, than a chimpanzee or a gorilla. This stuff looks good. And we think that the reason for the adoption of this high-quality diet is the very, very high metabolic costs of our very large brains. That gooey
4: cheese, just look at it. You know, oh, the Mongolian barbecue, I mean, you take all these ingredients and they throw
0: them on a big hot platter of some sort and squish it around and mmm! Brain tissue is very expensive in terms of calories. We expend about 20 to 25 percent of our daily energy budget simply to feed our brains. They've also got Rubio's Mexican, much more than an ape, and a steak joint at about 8 to 10 percent, and substantially more than other mammals at about 3 to 5 percent.
4: Hey, Cinnabon!
1: Cinnabon! Now you said high quality. I think some nutritionists might debate that point with you of whether or not the big cheeseburgers and and sodas
0: are high quality. High quality, I'm talking about, in a real evolutionary ecological sense. And when you look at the history of our species, for most of our evolutionary history, the biggest problem that we had to deal with was not getting enough food rather than getting too much. Consequently, what we see as important in human evolution is innovations over time that allowed us to improve the quality of what we were eating and become more efficient at extracting those calories from the environment.
2: Yeah, there's just too many things to choose from, and I kind of want it all. So I think
0: we need to like... Adopt hunting and gathering strategy. And it's important because it is a fundamentally more effective way of extracting calories from the environment.
2: So I'm gonna go get some pizza and a couple of burgers over that way. And why don't you head over to the Mongolian barbecue place? Hunting
0: and and gathering is fundamentally a divide and conquer strategy where you send a portion of your population out with a search image for one type of food, meat, animal material. All right, you go get the pizza? With the other half of the population, going out largely after vegetable material. And
4: I'll go get the cheese covered, broccoli
0: fried. Which is low risk, but lower on average in nutritional quality. Ultimately then bringing those resources back to a home base to be shared amongst the group.
1: But Bill, why is it that our brains need so much power to run?
0: Our brains need so much power in large measure because of the way that they use blood and the way that they use oxygen. The neural tissue requires vast amounts of blood and oxygen, about 16 times more than skeletal muscle tissues. Therefore, having those big brains and having the high metabolic costs of those brains means that a large chunk of our daily energy budget is being allocated to feed the brain.
1: Isn't this a a chicken or egg question of whether or not the brains got bigger so then we were were able to adapt ourselves to a changing environment and maybe plant or hunt or gather whatever we need to do, or is it that we did that which allowed our brains to get larger?
0: Yes, this is the fundamental conundrum. Which came first, the better quality diet or the bigger brains? It's a difficult question to answer, particularly in the archaeological and evolutionary record where our level of resolution on these things is not that fine-grained. What I will say, however, is that I do not think that diet alone was the single driving force for bigger brains. Rather, I think it was a necessary precursor. That is, it was something, it was the fuel that supported the evolution of bigger brains, but there were other factors at play the development of more complex social groups, the development of alternative foraging strategies, the sharing amongst groups, one another, that also help to fuel the important development of brain size and behavioral complexity.
1: Now, how do you know that it's bigger brains and not bigger bodies? Because the other thing that happened through evolution is we got bigger, our bodies got bigger. Uh, Don't we need more calories just to sustain a little bit more heft and and larger bones and so forth?
0: And that's certainly the case, that, that these prehistoric ancestors of ours at two million years ago were bigger in size, in stature, than the prehistoric hominid forms that came before them. But Even after correcting for body weight, our ancestors at 2 million years ago had larger brain sizes.
1: Now today, of course, we're extremely efficient at extracting energy from our environment. In fact, we hardly have to lift a finger, pull up to the drive-in, and you have a cheeseburger and you have french fries. Lots of calories, not much effort. What have the consequences been?
0: Well, you could arguably say that in our modern world, we are victims of our own evolutionary success. We have become too efficient at extracting calories from our environment. That is the relative cost of getting how many calories we need is relatively little. Some nutritionists have gone as far as to say that we actually live in modern times in obesogenic environments, environments where calories, high calorie foods, high fat foods are in abundance and environments where the amount of activity and energy that is needed to procure those foods is so low as to tilt the balance of energy in versus energy out in a positive direction, leading to an excess of calories and over time, an excess of people.
1: Why aren't our brains just getting bigger though? If we're putting all these calories, if we're super efficient now at bringing in the calories, shouldn't the human brain be
0: evolving at maybe a quicker rate? The human brain should could in theory be evolving at a faster rate. The problem is, however, that there are constraints associated with getting a big brain. One of the problems, of course, is getting that big child with the big brain through the birth canal. And one of the things that we know has already happened in human evolution is modern human moms actually give birth to babies that are relatively underdeveloped for their age. We say we give birth to altricial young, meaning that they are relatively more dependent and relatively underdeveloped for their, their age, essentially. Why did this happen? We think it's an accommodation to allow for the passage of babies through the birth canal and still allow for ever greater development of brain size. Essentially what we see in human infants is that the rapid brain growth that typically is only seen in the womb is now extended for a year to a year and a half postnatally.
1: Well, if this is all brain food, if this is all to serve the brain, why can't we just think these extra calories off? Why can't we burn them off with thinking? I've tried that, it doesn't work, you actually have to get on a treadmill or get on your bike, but why doesn't it work that way if it's all going
0: towards the brain? Well, a large chunk of it is going towards the brain, but a lot of that is maintenance costs, and remarkably, the number of extra calories that you use You know, doing calculus problems, for example, as opposed to just sitting there and watching TV, is not hugely different. Do you burn
1: calories doing calculus?
0: You you burn a few extra calories, thinking. You would burn (laughs) more calories if you were doing calculus while you were walking on a treadmill. And that's because even though the brain consumes energy at a much more rapid rate per pound or per gram, say, than skeletal muscle tissue, we have much more muscle tissue in our body than we have brain tissue. As a consequence, if we really want to up the total number of calories that our bodies need, the best thing to do is move those big muscles.
2: Oh, you know what, before we go, I gotta get something for dessert. I mean, we gotta get uh, the Cinnabon or something. Cinnabon,
4: Which... oh, hey, but Gary, it looks like they're closing over there. Oh
2: man, they're closing down. I'm gonna go get it really yeah, quick, okay? okay?
0: The big muscles of the legs and the big muscles of the arms. Run, Gary, run.
4: All right, I'll be right
0: back. Be sure to get two, Gary. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Bill
1: Leonard is Department Chair and Professor of Anthropology at Northwestern University.
0: IQ tests through time, France, 22,000 B.C.
1: Okay, Grog, how many rocks? Eh? Good. Which rock is smooth, which is sharp? Eh? A stick is to a tree, as a wheel is to a... Huh? Oh, sorry, no wheels yet. Um, fire, hot or cold? Huh? 100%! You're a
4: genius, Grog! Huh? So, according to Bill Leonard, I've justified maxing out at the food court. With each bite of that sweetly sticky Cinnabon, I'm grooving to the flow of human evolution, feeding the brain, making it bigger, so that human beings can put those superior-sized cerebellums to good use.
5: I am to smart! I am to smart! S-M-R-T. I mean S M A R R T.
4: Yes, our bigger brains are what separate us from other creatures in the animal kingdom. At least it's a big brain theory.
1: But it's not just brain size that makes us who we are. In his book, Human, the Science Behind What Makes Us Unique, Michael Gazanica points out what any good office assistant knows, organization of your materials is key. But the leading neuroscientist and the director of the University of California Santa Barbara Sage Center for the Study of the Mind, Dr. Gazanica, says scientists don't yet know enough about the human brain to say just why we're special, if indeed we are. But Seth wondered, couldn't it just come down to the numbers?
4: Mike, we have something like—I don't know—I think it's like a hundred billion nerve cells. I, right. I, rem- I remember that number because it's, you know, more or less the same as the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So right. yeah, clearly. Just the number of neurons must have some influence on our ability to to be cognitively uh, adept.
5: It must. And then when you consider the interactions of those neurons, each neuron can have 10,000 connections. So the connectivity patterns of a vast number of neurons like that has got to explain some of our unquestioned cognitive superiority in every way to any animal, other animal on Earth. And the question is, we see these things, and we can count them, and we know them, but how it does it is not at all clear.
4: Yeah, well, clearly, okay, it has some some influence. It's not the whole story. I mean, uh, the blue whale has a larger brain than, than we do, um, and certainly right. than, than I do, but I doubt that a blue whale could beat me at chess. I've got to say, I've never tried it. Uh, <laughs> Neanderthals, did Neanderthals have bigger brains than modern Homo sapiens? But they, they did. And uh, as far as I can tell, their contribution to literature or science has been somewhat minimal. So, So what gives? It's just the organization?
5: Having organizational differences certainly Uh, Should be huge. And the other thing that happens is that the brain, which is a vastly distributed system, begins to really work by having local control. So what we look at in the brain uh, as we go into the primate phyla is greater and greater specialization and more and more control at a local level. So things are done locally, but there are particular skills localized in particular parts of the brain, and the memories associated with those particular skills seem to be associated with those same parts. And I can give you an example, an astounding example, of how you come to that view. You know, most of my life I've studied patients who have had their hemispheres divided, so that was the so-called split brain. And you would think after split brain surgery where you wake up and you're talking to the doctor that you would notice that you no longer can verbally describe half of the visual space in front of you why don't you miss it? Why why don't you miss your right hemisphere? And in fact, we don't. And it's like the consciousness of that part of your space is localized over there in the part of your brain that is now disconnected from your speaking side.
4: But doesn't this sort of run against the thought that the brain is kind of holographic and that the function is sort of spread out over big volumes of the brain? I mean, this sounds like it really is the case that, like those diagrams of, you know, of cattle that you can point to one part and say, all right, now this is the flank steak and that's the T-bone over there. It sounds like there might be some functional map in your brain that's really very local.
5: Well, I think there's increasing evidence that that, that is the case. And somehow, when we experience the phenomenal conscious unity that we all have, that what is happening is that we're just shifting between all of these local control systems that are up at a particular time. So, that when one is up, that's what you're conscious about. When the next one is up, that's what you're conscious about. And it appears, just like in a a tune coming out of a pipe organ, it appears that there's a music coming out of this thing, but actually it's individual pieces, each contributing their own little tone, their own note.
4: Michael, you also write that advancements in genetics have allowed scientists to determine that there was a divergence between humans and chimps, in which our brains got bigger very quickly. First off, how do we really know that? We weren't around to observe it.
5: Well, there's all kinds of intercast data. These are the skulls of animals that have been collected by very clever archaeologists through the years. And you can just see this divergence. You can then see the Homo erectus, Homo, Holoma line growing at a particular pace throughout the last four or five million years. So there is hard evidence of the size changes through time.
1: Hold it right there, and we'll return to Seth's conversation with Michael Gazanica in a moment. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available
4: for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: We now return to Seth's conversation with Michael Gazanica.
4: This still sounds as if there's really a very strong continuum from non-human apes to the brains of Homo sapiens sapiens. So, you know, at, at what point do you say, well, look, we really are different than they are in a, in a way that's, you know, worth stating?
5: Here's the main one. All primates deal with the physical world in front of them. And they're pretty good at it. They can think about it, they can see relationships, they can act on them and so forth. But what the human does is see things that aren't there. They can see maybe the physical laws that are making that thing in front of me do the thing it does. They can see, as it were, in abstract term, the forces that may be present at any given moment. And that is a capacity that we humans alone seem to have. We can see what's not there, and we can think about it, and we begin to have theories about it, and it takes off like a rocket, and that's just not present in the animal kingdom.
4: I'm talking with Michael Gazaniga, a neuroscientist. Well, I hardly have to point out to you that not everyone agrees with your premise, that one can look at the evolutionary record and establish with firm footing that human brains are unique. And if you'll allow me to uh, quote here just very briefly, neuroscientist Robert Burton, who wrote in Salon, uh, his concern with your notion of uniqueness, a Ferrari is different from a Prius, but is each a unique category of transportation, as opposed to just different expressions of similar mechanics. How we answer this question has enormous religious, social, and political implications, ranging from animal rights to how we see those among us who may not share the same genetic expression with others. Um, you know, he 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 disagrees. He doesn't think we're all that different.
5: Yeah. You know, he's wrong. <laughs>
4: <laughs> okay, but is it, could it just be a matter of semantics? I mean, at, at some point, you say, well, we're different enough that I'll, I'll say we're different, or, you know, is it really fundamental?
5: I think there's what amounts to phase shifts. That There's just something that happens that allows us to be freed from being like an animal in the animal world where we have, have adaptations to specific problems to all of a sudden we have a general capacity What is it that made it all of a sudden all these elements come together so, in fact, we have this huge general capacity as opposed to the specific adaptations? And the underlying neurology of what that is is not known, but that it could be known, I think, is one of the goals of neuroscience.
4: Well, then what about artificial intelligence? Because, you know, in another 10 years or so, my laptop computer will have the same compute power As a human brain, but that doesn't mean it's going to be smart. Uh, That depends on the software. To get software for artificial intelligence, do we need to figure out how the human brain works first, or is it like designing airplanes? It really doesn't matter how birds fly. We, We figured out another way to fly.
5: That's a good question. It could be that we've had it wrong because usually the models of human cognition have been built from people stealing the architectures from computers and saying, okay, here's how the computer works. Maybe that's the model for how the mind works, and that hasn't gotten us very far, really. So so maybe it should be the other way around. We figure out how the brain does it, and then we start building brain-based computers. And the moment we do that and succeed at that, then maybe we will get closer to mimicking biologic intelligence.
4: Are you optimistic about AI? Do you see it happening in, the, in a generation? No. Okay. Well... All right, I won't invest in it. <laughs> Finally, Mike, uh, our brains may be what make us human, but are we our brains? I mean, if I took out my brain and put it in your body, and believe me, neither you nor I would want that, but, you know, <laughs> would would you suddenly be me, or would you feel like me? How would that work?
5: The brain in a Petri dish. <laughs> yes. Right? Is it you? Is it me? Who is that thing over there? Look. We come from the factory with a brain that gets built as a result of interacting with our environment and our particular experience. And to not realize that we are a product developed through time of all that rich individual experience we had, I think would be to miss a terribly important point about the fact that our memories and our experience that control who we are Come from that rich individual experience we had in the development of our life. So, uh, just putting your brain in me—I I don't know—it's almost a nonsensical concept to me. In that, I would then go home to my environment, but it would be you, and you know how, what, what, what does that mean? Uh, I don't know.
4: <laughs> I won't consider it as a weekend project.
5: No.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Michael Gazanica, thank you so much for letting me interact with your brain. Good. Thanks a lot.
1: Michael Gazanica is one of the world's leading neuroscientists and director of the University of California Santa Barbara's SAGE Center for the Study of the Mind. He's the author of The Ethical Brain and, most recently, Human, the Science Behind What Makes Us Unique.
0: IQ tests through time,
4: Greece. 500 BC. Okay, Demetrius,
2: what is the golden ratio? Excellent question, Professor Euclid, and necessary for further inquiry into art or architecture. I give my response as 1 plus the square root of 5 over 2, or approximately 1.6. Quite right.
4: Now, uh, what is the sum of the number of degrees in a triangle?
2: Do you mean a planar triangle or a spherical triangle? Because after all, they are not the same. Indeed, planar. Ah, then I present my answer as. 180 degrees.
4: Excellent. And finally, Doric is to Ionic as Delphi is to... My
2: considered reply is Piraeus?
4: No, I'm afraid not, Demetrius. Uh, And as a result, your score is not sufficient to work at the Canossus Olive Oil Emporium, but perhaps he could join Alexander and march to India.
1: So here we are at the pinnacle of human evolution. Brainy, intelligent, but it's not enough. We want more, more braininess, more intelligence. And we don't have time to wait around for evolution to cough it up. Use your tools and DIY, do it yourself. Imagine where it might lead.
3: My name is Ian Pearson. I'm a futurologist. It's my job to track technologies and see what impact they're gonna have on our everyday lives in the next 10, 20, even 50 years. Including how they may change your brain.
4: Ian, you're a self-proclaimed futurologist, and
3: I'm interested in the future of the brain. Now, where are brains headed? It's it's quite an interesting field, actually, because what's happening already is we're starting to connect electronics to nervous system tissues so we can grow nerves on chips and vice versa. Uh, we're already getting a lot of people out there with brain implants of one form or another, whether it's a cochlear implant in your, in your ear or even electrodes stuck onto the surface of your brain so you can control a wheelchair. That's already today's technology. Over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're expecting nanotechnology to get really small probes that we can stick deep inside the brain and connect to individual neurons. Once we can do that, we can start making a replica of the brain out in the computer world, where the computer's essentially got a nerve-for-nerve replica of what's inside your head. At that point, we, we end up with almost a backup.
4: Well, a backup, but it sounds like more than that. I mean, some of these things you've talked about, read the intention of the brain. Like, I I, I want that wheelchair or my wheelchair to move to the left. Okay, well, you know, that doesn't sound so difficult. But if you talk about replicating the brain at a
3: neuronal level, could we get our thoughts into a machine this way? I think the way it's likely to happen is a very gradual one. I mean, already we're starting to see some very simple implants and all they do at the moment is pick up very, very different signals so they can tell whether you are thinking left, right, up, down, or fire or something like that. That's really quite simple stuff. When you get a lot more resolution, when you can get down to a small group of neurons or even in the very far future just an individual neuron, then we really can start making a replica of that neuron outside in the computer world. So... If we can make a replica of of any part of the brain, we can speed it up dramatically. And also, if we've got the nanotechnology probes inside, we can link what's inside your brain to the equivalent one outside.
4: Well, you've predicted that human consciousness will be transferable to a computer by 2050. That's not so long from now, 40 years away. Do Do you really think that's possible, given that we don't even know what consciousness is?
3: You know, we still won't know what consciousness is probably in 2050, even after we've done this. None of this stuff requires you to understand exactly how the brain works. All we need to be able to understand is what an individual neuron is doing and to replicate the behavior of that neuron in an equivalent one outside. So if we've got a replica of your brain running outside connected electronically to what's inside your head, uh, effectively, you can use those neurons outside in the computer It's just an extension of what's going on inside your head.
4: So my brain now extends to this piece of machinery that's outside yes. of
3: my body, right? That's exactly right. And if you imagine that over a period of time, you're using that piece outside your body more and more and more because it's simply more powerful. You can have much more memory, more intelligence, more sensory capability. All of those things can be replicated, but they can be accelerated and made much more powerful outside. You get to the point around about 2050, 2060, where most of your thinking and most of your memories actually exist in the electronics rather than what's inside your head. If you will, my personality
4: is in that box. I mean, that's dismaying enough, But but my first concern here is, I go on a date, do I bring this box along with me? Because after all, it may be 90%, as you say, of of who I am. Couldn't we put all that hardware inside my skull so at least I wouldn't have the, if you will, the embarrassment of having to carry around this machine?
3: Well, there's two sides of that. One is that the machine would be incredibly small If you can ever get down to the electronic size where we can get one atom per bit, which is probably 2050 technology, your entire brain would fit inside one ten thousandth of a pinhead. So it would fit quite easily inside your brain if we wanted to accelerate that, and that's all you wanted to do. But really, there's nothing to stop you putting it completely across the network and just linking electronically. Uh, It doesn't even matter how far it is away, as long as it's in the same country, your brain wouldn't notice that distance because the speed of light is so fast compared to how fast signals travel inside your brain.
4: Now, we've already done something like this. I believe that there's a fellow by the name of Kevin Warwick, yeah, he's a professor in England. He studies the direct interface of computers in the human nervous system, and he has a neural implant. I think it's in his arm, so it can be done. Is that the
3: direction we're going? I think so, but what Kevin's had done was he had some surgery and he had some chips actually uh, attached to actual nerve fiber in his arm. I really don't think most of us want to go through that. I don't think he wants to go through it again either. What I would imagine is you probably get an injection, probably into your arm or something, of a, a fluid which contains some nanoparticles. They would wander up to your brain and then they would connect to the neurons. And then you connect using those nanoparticles by radio to the outside computer. So... Your brain's effectively connected by radio to the replica brain outside. So if you get Alzheimer's, not part of your brain stops working so well, you just start using the memory that you've got outside. What strikes me are the timescales you cite here,
4: Ian. You're talking about stuff happening by 2025, 2050. I mean, this is all this generation. Mm. And uh, I can imagine some people push back on that—that that this is just wishful thinking. It isn't going to happen. And yet, you cite the fact that there are Japanese technology companies that are working on robots that, while they don't replace you in terms of, you know, being able to teach a
3: course or write a novel, they can do an awful lot. Do you really believe these timescales? I do. When people dismiss timescales as being far too short, what they're usually forgetting is that we're on an exponential increase in technology. Here, we will see as much new technology in the in the next twenty years as we seen in the last 100, and then 10 years after that. That really brings things much further forwards. Every new technology we get helps us in the design of every new, other new technology. So when we get better nanotech, we can do better computing. Then we can do better biotech, so then we can figure out how the brain works faster. Then we can do more AI, and we get more nanotech. It all goes around in a nice virtuous circle. Thanks so much for talking to me. That was good fun. Thank you.
1: Ian Pearson is a futurologist at Futurizen, an institute that looks at trends, you guessed it, in the future, including the future of the brain. And he's not the only one.
6: Well, I think we are getting more and more focused on building better brains. There's a lot of discussion about how you can enhance brains.
1: A biologist who's done significant research on Alzheimer's disease, Stephen Rose is director of the Brain and Behavior Research Group at the Open University in London.
6: I think it comes partly out of everyone's worry, especially as we get older, about Alzheimer's disease and losing our memory, and can we actually protect what we've got. But then on top of that comes the idea of, well, can we enhance what we've got as well?
4: And why not? We need our brains. And now that people are living longer, they want healthy brains to accompany them on that longer journey. So there's naturally an emphasis today on trying to treat and cure the most debilitating degenerative brain diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But Dr. Rose urges us to remain clear-eyed about just what cutting-edge technologies can achieve and also when interfering with brain function goes too far. He's not talking about Ian Pearson's far-out future when we download our brains into a laptop. Dr. Rose says today's drugs and therapies are already altering human behavior in a way that makes him uneasy. Which he discusses
1: in his book, The Future of the Brain, The Promise and the Perils of Tomorrow's Neuroscience. Certainly, we hope to cure Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Rose has spent much of his life trying to do just that. But new approaches, such as gene therapy, don't yet offer the wondrous cure that one might hope for.
6: Let's just by saying what happens in Alzheimer's disease, and that is that there's a biochemical problem in the brain in which a certain protein which is necessary for brain function um, in its normal state simply is broken down wrongly, and as it's broken down, it forms those sticky clumps which um, anyone who's looked at pictures of brains with Alzheimer's knows are there, and they result in steady death of the brain cells and the connections between them. So that's what goes wrong, and we know the biochemistry quite well. So the argument is can one actually develop a drug which will intervene in that process. And there, unfortunately, we're not so far advanced as many of us would like.
4: Well, that's surprising to me because the impression I get, it's only a subjective impression, but from reading, you know, science news pieces and so forth, is that, well, Alzheimer's is one of those dreaded diseases, if you will, that we might be actually rather close to curing.
6: Well, Yeah, I mean, we felt like that for a very long time. There was a first generation of drugs, um, and there were three or four of them. They all worked in the same sort of way. I'm not sure what the trade names are for them in the States, but one of them is Aricept, for example, in the UK, um, or Reminil, Memantine, others of those. And they don't really work very well. They actually slightly preserve memory, but they don't stop the deterioration that comes in the disease, and there's no way that we know of stopping that deterioration. There are now second and third generations of drugs which are in the pipeline, some that are being tested on in from the sort of work I'm doing, some from many other labs as well. And so we're all full of hope about it. But my suspicion is that any of the drugs that we've got are only going to be drugs which will delay the um, inevitable decline that comes with the disease. And that's no bad thing. But they ain't going to stop it and they ain't going to prevent it. It uh, sounds somewhat depressing. Well, I think it is a bit depressing. I mean, yes, if you can buy as a result of the drugs five, seven, eight, ten more years of, of active life in the community and sort of life where, where you work with your loved ones, you can live at home, people recognize you, you recognize them, then that's no bad thing. But at the moment, I don't think there are any techniques or any drugs in the pipeline which will actually stop the, the biochemical process of decay dead in its tracks and that's what we want. That's called neuroprotection, and we're simply not there at the moment. I wish we were.
4: Well, let's talk about something that's designed to actually go beyond, if you will, normal cognitive capability, smart pills, smart drugs. W- what are these things?
6: Well, the idea is that if you can pop a pill which will help you um, sort of remember what you've just learnt or keep more attentive or more alert then um, you'll function better you'll get a cognitive edge on the rest of the world um, I mean the ones that uh, any, any school kid or any parent in the states will know about is of course Ritalin um, because that doesn't work but directly by affecting memory but it makes you more attentive and alert and therefore more able to absorb new information similarly the US Air Force uses a drug called modafinil to keep its pilots more alert and, and, and awake and functioning on long plane missions. So those drugs are around, and they do work, and they work to do some sort of enhancing of cognition in, in quotes, ordinary people, not just in people who are already beginning to suffer from the disease.
4: Well, you've mentioned Ritalin, and of course, as, as you say, that is treated on a fairly widespread scale here in the United States for attention uh, deficit and hyperactivity disorder, And, in fact, uh, I think statistics show that something like uh, a few percent of school kids here are being treated that way. That means in every class that you go to, the chances are pretty good that at least one kid is on this stuff. Uh, Is this really a good idea?
6: Well, I think it's a very bad idea. It's certainly the case that uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is diagnosed up to 10 times more frequently in the States than it is in Britain or elsewhere in Europe And indeed, in, in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, the disease didn't really exist as a recognized condition until the last 15 years or so, when we, I think we caught it from the States in some ways. Um, I'm pretty worried about it, um, because there are no good long-term studies of what happens to treating young brains for a long period of time with drugs of this sort. Certainly, if you use Ritalin in a short period of time, in order to sort of stabilize the relationship between the school and the kid and the, and the parents, that might be be worth having, but I'm really worried about using it extensively.
1: Hold on, we'll return to Seth's interview with neuroscientist Steve Rose in a moment. You're listening to Are We Alone?
0: IQ tests through time, Palo Alto, 2009 A.D.
1: Jason, how many
0: rocks? Can I Twitter for
1: help? The answer is... Two now, Newton is to gravity as Einstein is to.
2: Aren't they both dead white males? Yes. So how is that relevant to my experience? That doesn't reflect my socio-ethical racial history, and I refuse to answer the question.
1: One more: which continent lies between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean?
2: Can I Google Earth it?
1: No, no need. Welcome to Stanford.
2: The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces.
1: It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy.
7: My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem.
2: We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds
1: or whatever. Are
2: they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I
1: know a lot of people have been saved because of them.
2: We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have
1: really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs)
2: Listen to the Ambie Award nominated
1: podcast, Surfing Corporate. We now return to Seth's conversation with neuroscientist Stephen Rose.
4: Stephen, uh... Perhaps at the risk of you wondering to what lengths I will go for this program, I had my brain wired recently. They put little suction cup electrodes on my head to participate in a neuromarketing demonstration where they would show me television ads that were going to be aired, and they would try and measure the reaction of my brain to these ads. Was I paying attention? Did I find them interesting? Was I in some way convinced by the ad to buy a product? Uh, What do you think of this neuromarketing?
6: Well... I suppose I'm sort of mildly responsible for it myself, Was we did some experiments actually sort of looking at people, doing brain imaging when people were looking at advertisements, actually if they were for buying products in the supermarket. I wanted to do it because I wanted to test out people's memories for the products that they liked and which bits of the brain lit up when they were remembering things they liked to buy. But I got deluged by requests from marketing companies and ad agencies afterwards to try and sort of work with them as well. And I felt a bit uneasy about it. I think it's fashionable. I think you can tell a lot about the way the brain works and you can certainly tell which bits of the brain are going to light up when you see one sort of advertisement Rather than another i'm not sure if it tells the ad companies any more than 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 simply asking people about it, but it it clearly makes them feel good to see brain images like that and um, Brain imaging itself is something of course which is um, hugely exciting um, Nearly everyone, not just neuroscientists, has seen those amazing colour pictures of different bits of the brain lighting up. What worries me about it is whether it's being used predictively. Again, there are claims that you can use it in court, for example, to detect potentially whether someone is lying, whether they've committed a murder or haven't, whether they are, um, as one U.S. website says, whether they're terrorists or have terrorist thoughts or have been to terrorist training camps. So you use it as a sort of an alternative to a lie detector technique. But many of us involved in brain imaging, I think, are very, very worried about the ways in which it's being interpreted.
4: Well th- my comeback to that would be uh, could they actually do that could they actually make that work i mean even aside from whether they should could it could it in fact tell you whether somebody was criminally guilty of something <laughs>
6: Look, I think, and I think a lot, a lot of brain images think it's, it's snake oil, but it's being sold quite heavily. It's being used already in the courts, um, in one case in India, in a couple of cases in the States. And the truth is that we, even if it's snake oil, then it is, and if it is used, people will be inclined to believe it. And it's yet another weapon in the, in the armory, I think, of state control. And I, I feel, <laughs> remember, I come in Britain from a society where there is, which are the most surveillance oriented society in the world i live in london and i reckon i'm caught on cctv cameras probably 40 times a day we have huge dna fingerprint banks for something like four million including a lot of kids and brain imaging is going to be yet another part of that apparatus of control And, and i find that very worrying
4: in, in movies, this is a device that uh, appeared in the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You know, they, yeah. had a, they had a technique called transcranial brain simulation or something like that where they could erase memories. They, they love to do this in science fiction. They, they hold up some device in front of you and suddenly you've forgotten everything that's happened in the past two hours. Uh, is it, can scientists actually do this or anything remotely like it?
6: Well, they can't do it the way they did in that Marvel's movie, which uh, we all enjoyed enormously, I think, um, not by clapping some electrodes on your head because they're not focused and precise enough. Though transcranial brain stimulation is a technique which is coming down the road. But uh, now that we know more and more about the biochemistry, the biochemical changes that go on in the brain when uh, someone is learning or remembering, and we also know that a lot of these changes are reactivated when the memories are reactivated, then there are suggestions that you call actually reactivate a memory and then erase it with a drug, um, a drug that we know works to block memory formation and some people have suggested using it for treating uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and so on. I think it's already been tried in humans, not very successfully, um, but it is a technique which is being tried out in the lab on animals at the moment and there was even a paper suggesting this um, just a few weeks ago in Science.
4: Then in the future, suppose that we really do finally understand enough of how the brain works that we can change our mental processes. And and imagine I'm born, you know, a a generation or two or three down the line. I'm technologically enhanced. Half of my brain might be new wiring or or maybe uh, it has an implanted chip or some sort of uh, drugs are put into me. Am, am I still a human, or have I, you know, become a different species? I mean, what does this imply about our humanity? Well, I
6: mean, there are a lot of people who argue that you would become what's called a transhuman in that sort of way, and um, there are a lot of bioethicists, transhumanists who are very excited about the prospect. I'm a little cautious because I think there, there are limits to human ingenuity in actually achieving this. I think I'd be quite satisfied if a couple of generations down, or one generation down, one has sold Alzheimer and um, one has solved some of the other terrible brain diseases like Huntington's and uh, on, on Parkinson's and you had a situation where in the, the words of the World Health Organization you can not just add um, years to life but add life to years as well so that we could actually survive w- w- well into our sort of hundreds or 110s or whatever it might be um, still fully functioning individuals and that seems to me to be sort of as big a target as I'm prepared to aim at at the moment.
4: Well, Stephen Rose, thank you so much for talking with me. I think I'll uh, go off and uh, do a few Sudoku puzzles.
6: Go for it, and good luck, and thank you very much. A great pleasure.
4: Stephen Rose is a biologist who's done significant research on Alzheimer's disease. He is the director of the Brain and Behavior Research Group at the Open University in London and the author or editor of 15 books, most recently, The Future of the Brain, The Promise and Perils of Tomorrow's Neuroscience.
1: Well, if anyone is going to become a transhuman or build a transhuman, it might just happen here. Are you are you building, are you actually building transhumans here in this laboratory? Is that your goal?
7: Our goal is not to build transhumans, but our goal is to build enabling technologies that allow us to treat people who are suffering from major neurological and psychiatric disorders.
1: Ed Boyden is a neuroscientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology.
7: Working at the MIT Media Lab on neuroscience and neuroengineering.
1: I understand we're going to go for a walk. Let's go. Dr. Boyden is developing novel treatments for disease that affect the brain, such as Parkinson's, epilepsy, and schizophrenia.
7: This is an area where we do uh, uh, molecular biology. Uh, We synthesize molecules and then we make them uh, so that we can create, uh, in our case, uh, molecules that sensitize neurons to being activated or shut down by pulses of light. So this is kind of the making stuff room.
1: Well, a lot of people talk about engineer about the future of engineering better brains, but it looks like you're not just talking the talk. Not only are you walking down the hallway right now, you're also <laughs> walking the walk. You're actually trying to engineer better brains, is that right? I'm trying to keep up with you. your walking very oh, fast.
7: Sorry. Uh, well, there's a lot, of, a lot of brain disorders out there that we'd like to be able to treat
1: which means getting to know brain cells, or neurons, up close.
7: Unlike a computer, which has a fairly small repertoire of, of different elements in it, you know, a transistor here, a capacitor here, the brain has, you know, thousands of different kinds of cell, and we have to understand how these cells work together to mediate the computations in our brain and how we can correct the activity if it goes awry. Well, this might not be as photogenic as it used to be because we put up all of the, uh, the light-proof materials, but since we do a lot of work with light in the brain...
1: There are a lot of signs here that say, danger, 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 why is that?
7: Well, we're using a very, very bright laser here because we want to focus light upon individual cells to see if we can activate them and shut them down. And so for maximum flexibility, we're using extremely powerful lasers. And the light is also invisible. It's infrared light. So if you were to have it shine on you, you might not even know it. So we have a lot of shielding. We have a lot of blockers here and a lot of warning signs to make sure that people don't get in the way of the lasers.
1: One way that brain cells signal is called spiking, in which information, electrical information, travels down the axons.
7: And because it's a a binary all-or-none effect, you can control cells very robustly. Either it fires or it doesn't.
1: He's able to identify and target cells for specific diseases, because many neural disorders are due to changes in particular regions or cell types in the brain.
7: It's become clear, for example, that Parkinson's disease is due to changes in specific cells that make uh, a modulator called dopamine that sit in the brainstem or that schizophrenia is clearly associated with changes in certain classes of inhibitory cells called interneurons in the cortex.
1: The goal is to make those targeted cells in the brain create a protein, a protein that makes the cells sensitive to light.
7: And in order to do that, we have to inject a virus into the brain. The virus carries the gene that encodes for this protein the same way that our our DNA and our genome encodes for the proteins that make us up. So for example, a cell in our liver might express different proteins than a cell in our brain, and within our brain, different cells will express different proteins. We can take those regulatory sequences that make those cells unique, put them in front of our gene, and doing so, our viruses will turn on genes just in the cells of interest the same way that our bodies do it automatically.
1: The virus is common. Ninety percent of people have it already, and it's been used in gene trials. It's also used in the natural world by organisms to convert light into electrical energy.
7: Much like the molecules in our eye that turn light into signals that our brain can understand, we are putting in these genes that convert light into electrical energy in these viruses so that these neurons become light responsive.
1: Okay, so the, the idea is not that the patient needs to stand under a blue light or a yellow light or whatever it may be to turn on these receptors in the brain. Mm-hmm.
7: The, yes, the what we're doing is delivering light to a very, very local region deep in the brain. And to do that requires an implanted device much like a deep brain stimulator, except that it has an optical fiber instead of a, a electrical carrying wire, and that allows us to turn on or off different targets deep in the brain. So for example, epilepsy is is associated with uncontrolled oscillatory activity across the brain, large waves of activity that that overcome the natural function of neural circuits in the brain. And it would be great if we could just shut down that circuit just for a short amount of time in order to prevent those haywire activity from, from propagating everywhere. So what we would love to do is be able to put in some of these optical sensitizers that allow us to shut down neural circuits, put them just into the areas that are overactive, and to turn them off just at the time of a seizure. And when the person is not having those problems, then the, the device is, is quiescent and doesn't, doesn't intervene with the brain.
1: Dr. Boyden's work is representative of the future of neuroscience and neuroengineering.
7: You can think of this as a hybrid between two other areas of existing biotechnology. One is gene therapy, where people are, you know, injecting viruses into the brain that alter the function of different cells in the brain. And one is electrical stimulation, where people put devices into the brain. This is kind of a hybrid of those technologies, except that we're using a virus that delivers an optical sensitizer into the brain, and they we're putting in a device that will deliver light just to those areas.
1: Well, thank you very much.
7: Thank you.
4: Ed Boyden is a neuroscientist at the MIT Media Lab and is in the Department of Biological Engineering. Well, Molly, it sounds to me like his focus is on, you know, curing the sorts of ailments that can interfere with brain function.
1: Right. It's not about building cyborg humans. But, you know, Seth, I suppose in the end that depends on what your definition is of what it means to be human.
4: Well, indeed, that's always the case. But I kind of like the approach. It's sort of like maintaining your car. You can enjoy the car longer. Well, that's it for our show.
1: We'd like to thank the cerebrally endowed Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help with the program.
4: And the SETI Institute, where scientists listen for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And to do that, we first need to understand how big brains evolved on this planet. Also thanks to the NASA Astrobiology Institute.
0: IQ tests through time, the Federal Republic of Iowa, 2080 A.D.
1: Now X18-152, what is the current human population of Mars? Good. Who is the commissar of the United Cyborgs? <laughs> Affirmative. Silicon is to DNA as carbon nanotubes are to. Excellent, X18-152. You are just what we are looking for. Here is your certificate of approval for self-replication. <laughs>